Hello, and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Miriam Cobb. Miriam is the founder and director of Empty Frames Initiative, an organization that works with young people aging out of foster care based in both Texas and North Carolina. Well, welcome, Miriam. Thanks so much for joining our podcast series. How are you today? I'm doing good. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. We're excited to have you. And I'm very interested in finding out about your organization. But before we go there, could you please just share a little bit about yourself and how is it that you came to be connected with the foster care system? Absolutely. So my story is a little bit weird in this space. I wasn't in foster care. My parents didn't foster while I was little, and I didn't really pay too much attention to it. I grew up in church, and I knew that fostering and adoption was good, but I didn't have a really personal connection to it. But when I was 15, I read this book called Choosing to See by Mary Beth Chapman, and God really used it to place orphan care on my heart. It wasn't a book necessarily about adoption or orphan care. It was her life story. But in the process of telling her life story, she talked about adopting three girls from China and talked about grieving the loss of one of her daughters. And God just spoke to me through it. And I felt like I was called to be involved in adoption and orphan care. Fast forward a couple of years, obviously there's a lot of life that happens in between. But when I was 20, I was at this conference and I was a part of an entrepreneur track. And I was sharing this business idea I had, and I was going to photograph adoptions. And as I was digging deeper into that idea, I was like, I'll photograph adoptions. I will pass on photography as a life skill in orphanages and in foster care. And I'll just use this to bring awareness to this issue because I'm not married. I'm not adopting, but it's important to me. When I pitched this idea, I was originally going to call it Widows and Orphans Photography. It was based on James 127 in the Bible. In the back of my mind, I kept thinking, empty frames, empty frames, empty frames. So when I gave this like presentation and I laid out my whole big plan, the people who were weighing in and helping us with our projects were like, we only like the name. We only like empty frames. We need you to dig deeper and figure out what you actually care about. I was like, oh, okay. That must have floored you a little bit. (laughs) It (laughs) did. It did, but it came after this period of confusion anyway, so I was already kind of a mess. Uh, So hearing it was just like, oh, okay, great. Let me go back to the drawing board. So I did. It was a really great conference. It's called 21 Project. It was out of California. Now they do it in a couple different places. I was with these entrepreneurs for three weeks, and in that time, I was just praying and seeking and trying to figure out what I could really do in this sphere. I'd spent some time in Eastern Europe, so I was doing research on some of the orphan care statistics and issues in that area, and I started to read more about aging out. And it was important, and it kind of spoke into this idea of being able to teach photography as a life skill because it was at a time when they could really utilize it. I was reminded of these old Soviet buildings that I had seen that were abandoned and no one was using them. And I was like, they could be something. So I had all these images of different empty frames, the empty frames in all of our lives without Christ, the images of these empty buildings. 
the images of kids who grew up without their photos being taken or their stories being honored. And it turned into this aging out program. And I pitched it for our last little presentation and was chosen to receive continued support from this entrepreneur group after the conference had ended. That was kind of the signal that this was something meaningful and real. And I brought it home and my church family was supportive and my actual family was supportive. It grew from there. And while I was sharing it with people in North Carolina, that's where I was at the time, I was sharing about what I was looking to do with the foster care. Like I was sharing with individuals who were in the foster care system. And they were like, we actually need that type of aging out program here. And I was like, really? There's a lot of stuff in the U.S. Like I know about these other things. But as I looked into it and was pursuing it, I realized that there was such a huge need. And the vulnerabilities were very similar as what was experienced in Eastern Europe and around the world. And so after praying and working through that, we decided to launch our first program here out of the U.S., and that's why I'm here. <laughs> wow, wonderful. So it seems like it was a lot of soul searching and a combination of soul searching and research. Yeah. <laughs> that brought you to that point. Not necessarily like direct experience. So many people go into nonprofits in this area because they've had direct experience with foster care, but not everybody. Not everybody. And so I definitely respect people who learn about the aging out challenges that young people face and to use the phrase, adopt that as their own mission. You're right. I definitely have a bent towards doing the research side of it. And so that soul searching and research, yeah, that's what God used to get me here. Yeah. Well, let me ask this before we move on to learn about the um, Empty Frames Initiative. You mentioned that you were uncovering the challenges that young people in orphanages or foster care, whatever they call it, in other countries that you've discovered they had those problems and then found out that the issue is here as well. Typically, it's the other way around, but it is a global challenge. There are young people throughout the world without families, without parents who are in some kind of alternative caring situation and face the same kinds of problems as the young people here in the United States do. And it sounds like you saw that. Yeah, it is such a huge global need. And it's so overwhelming to see at times. Every country handles it a little bit differently. But I want to say like just even the last 20 years has just put such a, a push on it. A recognition from all these different governments and global entities to be like, wait a minute, we have these kids, some of them taken from their family, some of them without families at all. And we're putting them back into society without any real support. We took them on and said that we'll be the family figure, but we're not prepared to be a family. And it's, right. yeah, it's a lot. It is. And you would think it's something that we would have solved by now, but we haven't solved hunger <laughs> and we haven't solved poverty. So Maybe, unfortunately, it's just one of those social challenges that we just need to continue to try to improve as best we can. Yeah, I feel the same way. And maybe it's not with necessarily the government as the solution. You know, maybe it's a matter of people like you stepping up and saying, I can help in a corner of the world. I can help. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, let's find out how you decided to help. <laughs> I think we have a sense of maybe what Empty Frames is about, but... If you could please explain what your organization is. When did you get started? What it is that you do? 
yeah. and uh, the strategies that you use with young people. I just want to hear all about it. Okay. So we started in 2015. That was the year that we were incorporated in North Carolina and launched out of our church. And we have been working the past six years towards opening a short-term residential program that would provide training in life skills, counseling, community, and access to the gospel. It would be about three months and really just a stepping stone into other programs, a chance for youth to breathe and take a rest period and decide what they would really like to pursue next. Over these past six years, there's been a lot more research, (laughs) a lot more digging into what the challenges were in our specific area and what was really needed. And I feel like that's been so beneficial for our organization. We've become a lot more trauma aware than when we started and just equipped with the right language. I think there's always room to grow, but the right language, the right perspective on a lot of things. We've done a lot of small projects in partnership with other organizations in our area. The one project that I'm really excited about that we just kind of finished was the story of foster care. It was the first time we did our storytelling through photography curriculum. It's the only piece of our curriculum that we've written ourselves. Everything else is just from tried and true practices that we've been able to source from other people. But we made this curriculum called Storytelling Through Photography, and it's a photography-based literacy program that kind of works like art therapy. It lets everyone process their stories, share with other people, and then figure out what do they actually want to tell people if they choose to tell people their stories. We piloted the program a few years ago with three former foster youth, two foster parents, and two social workers. And they all went through the program and put together their photos and stories, and we turned it into an art gallery and then into a book. So that's the project that we've completed most recently and are really excited about. So is the book published? It is. It's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And it's a photo book, so it's really pretty. It's all paperback right now, but we're working to get the like Kindle and iPad versions available so people can look at it that way. Okay. And is the name of that book Story of Foster Care? Yes. It's The Story of Foster Care, Volume 1. And you can find it by looking up any of the authors, but also by looking up Empty Frames Initiative. Oh, wonderful. I'm going to have to look that up after we get off this interview. (laughs) I'll put a link to that in the podcast notes as well. Awesome. That's great. So for those who are listening on the website, agingoutinstitute.org, you can find the link there. So since 2015, you've done a lot of research and you've initiated, like you said, maybe some smaller projects in partnership with other organizations. Is that in the North Carolina area? Yes. We've been working in North Carolina all the way up until last year. And last year, due to COVID, several of our team members, including myself, moved to Texas. And so that's why we're currently working there as well. Okay. You're growing. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Now, when you started in 2015 until now, you've mentioned that you have a curriculum and that the photography curriculum is part of a larger curriculum. So what is it that you're doing with young people with this curriculum? Is it a program that young people go through and they experience all of the different elements of the curriculum? Or do you have different things like this photography curriculum some kids might sign up for and you have a different curriculum that other kids might sign up for? So I'm curious what you've been doing in the last few years and what that 
experience is like for the young person? Yeah. So our curriculum that we've been gathering has really been with the purpose of using it in the residential program. So it's a collection of like life skills training and life book documentation and the storytelling curriculum, all really surface level, but again, just preparing them for whatever they want to pursue next, whether that be college or career or moving into a longer term residential program. And we share the piece of curriculum we like with other organizations, like the ones that we found that have been really helpful was a transitioning out of care book from Foster Club International. So we've shared some of our copies of that with people and encouraged them as we've met other organizations doing the same work. And last year, we purchased curriculum. One of our partners was closing down and we bought their curriculum so that it could be continued to be used after they were done. And we're excited to use that eventually because what we want to do is have our residential program be something that can be used everywhere. So we're trying to get together the pieces to make it easy to launch in multiple places. Ah, kind of like a franchise type of situation? Yeah, a nonprofit franchise with All like right, there you go. Different little, yeah, different little pop-up sites. Because there's so many people wanting to do this work and there's so much good work that's already been done. It just makes sense to have the best practices collected and able to be distributed. Yeah, I like that idea that you're building it to be scalable. Yes, yeah. That's a great idea. And what ages, well, I guess there's a couple of questions. What ages of young people have you been working with up till now? And then what will the ages be that you work with in the residential program? The organization that we were able to partner with the most in North Carolina has been SASO, Strong Able Youth Speaking Out. And they were youth 12 to 24, I believe. And so when we've done little pieces with them, We've been interacting with youth in that same age range. After we met some of the young people and have worked with them continuously, I think the people that partnered in our storytelling through photography, like Pilot, had already processed their stories a lot and were comfortable sharing with people. So we were sending it to older individuals and we weren't really providing them a service. But the oldest, (laughs) she's going to hate me for saying it this way. I'm like trying to rephrase it. But the oldest person that we've worked with was in her early 30s, and she's phenomenal. She became a licensed clinical social worker and actually joined our board. And we weren't providing her a service, but I consider, I'm like, of the ones that we've met and interacted with and have gone through our program, she would be the oldest. The eventual program, I think where we're at right now would be offering it from 18 to 24 for the residential program. And Okay. After they leave foster care or might be part of it in extended foster care, possibly. Yeah. And it would be smaller groups of people coming through. So we'd try to find some that we're going to each, I want to say cohort, each cohort that's coming through the residential program would be in a close enough range to where it wouldn't be leading to conflict. But 18 and 24 would be the offering. And then depending on who applies and stuff, trying to make it compatible. Okay. And where will your residential program be located? Maybe I should ask this. How far along are you in starting this program? Do you have a residence for that? We do not have a residence, but we have people who are who want to be there. And so it's been a long road of applying and seeking out funding and trying to do fundraisers. And I feel like we have to be close. <laughs> we decided to 
move that program to Texas when I moved here and after a lot of conversations with the board because of the way that COVID has affected the different states and because of where I'm going to be. Texas is a little more open right now and able to really have these conversations with people, whereas North Carolina has experienced more shutdowns due to COVID. So that's something that you're still pulling together. Do you have an estimated time or deadline or goal that you're shooting toward to purchase a property and open the program? I'll be honest. No, I wish we did. (laughs) Every other year we set up a goal and it just gets a little bit derailed, (laughs) but we're working towards it. Well, I imagine with COVID particularly, that must have really pushed things back. Yeah, it did. We actually did the gallery in 2019 and we were going to launch the book in 2020. And we were so excited because it was like, this is going to start a capital campaign for us. And then it just got completely derailed by COVID shutting down everything. And there was a lot of need at that time. And it wasn't the most strategic thing to try to fundraise for a new program at the time, rather than point people to resources that were needing funding and support. So we're about ready to start fundraising again for our facility, but we do not yet have a goal date for purchasing and opening Okay. All right. You know, I'm wondering, there are a lot of different organizations who have gone through this process, you know, to start a residential program. And I don't know if you would be interested at all in talking with some of those organizations, but just offline after this interview, if you wanted me to help connect you to some other organizations who have been there, done that, and could help, you know, give you some advice, some suggestions, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, I love that. I love any connections And I think collaborating is so important. So I would love to, if you were able to send me people that you thought would be helpful, that'd be great. Sure, sure. I'm making a note of it right now. Now, if folks wanted to provide donations to your organization, doesn't sound like your capital campaign is quite there yet, but if they wanted to donate now, is there a place online where they could do that? Yes. And if they chose to give us a building, we would gladly accept it. But we, yes, you could go to our website, fillingemptyframes.org, and there's a donate button where you could just add donate to the end of the URL. So fillingemptyframes.org slash donate. You can also donate through Facebook if you want to. Yeah, it'd be so appreciated. Now, let's see. Another question that I had for your residential program, the planning are you thinking that you will work with young women and young men or one or the other? Both. Both? Okay. Yeah. For our first site, and we've been trying to like pitch this pilot site for a while now, but we were just looking for getting a space where we could house four to five students at a time. It's really small because it's intentional discipleship and community coming around them and for each other, right? And so we were going to use it as like a rotation. So we'd have four to five girls for three months and then take a month or so for a break. And then there'd be four to five guys in the house. So while the female house coaches are like talking to their students and doing all the follow-up work, we're hosting men in the home to help them. And yeah, never really considered having just one. It's just so important. Yeah, the need is there. If you're outside an urban area in particular, I imagine the numbers are fairly high of young people aging out of foster care and needing that kind of support. Yeah, it is. 
Are there other programs like that in the area there in, in Texas? There's a lot of programs here in Texas, and there are a lot that would work really well with our program, that they'd be able to continue if they want to in those other programs in the state. You know, I just think, I imagine this partnership situation, of course, small organizations like yours really gain value and capabilities by partnering with other organizations. And I could just see this fantastic partnership between organizations. And there are more and more of these like this out there, like a coffee shops that employ young people aging out of foster care, or I've come across bike stores, bicycle stores that hire young people aging out of foster care. It seems like I'm seeing more and more of those coming across the wire in existence. And, you know, it's just a regular little store of some kind, you know, a for-profit organization, but their mission is to help young people in this situation. So I could see maybe a short-term residential program like yours, it could be a wonderful opportunity to partner with an organization like that. So not only can you have the residential support, but maybe even get them a job. Yeah, I totally agree. And I feel like we are like going to be uniquely suited to support those groups because when they are doing that work, and it's so needed that there's people that are like wanting and pursuing employment opportunities for them, but some of them aren't always capable of handling all the different dynamics of, hey, do you have a car? Do you have family member when you're sick? Do you have these things? And we're looking to provide that part. So I'm so excited to be able to partner with organizations like that. There's one in the Dallas area and they have a couple shops. It's the La La Land Kind Cafe. Yep. Yep. I've heard of them. Absolutely. They're so cute. (laughs) (laughs) I went into one of them and I was like, oh my gosh. So cute. <laughs> and there are, there are more and more springing up in Philadelphia, which is the closest to me. Um, yeah. There's the monkey, monkey. and the elephant. <laughs> yeah. And then right here, not far from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, there's the Cracked Pot Coffee Shop. And so I know that coffee shops seem to be, little restaurants seem to be popular mm-hmm. for this type of work. But we definitely need more residential programs like yours as well. Yeah, I agree. Now, you mentioned coaching staff. Are they mentors or would you have different individuals who would be mentors? They are like mentors. They are peer mentors. So they're not going to be too much older than the students. We're trying to create an environment that encourages their autonomy and allows them to feel safe and comfortable and not like they're back in a foster home. Some of them would be able to pursue being in another foster home, but we're looking to for something that would be helpful for those who are trying to avoid that atmosphere. We're playing with different names and it's like mentor or coach or house parent. I'm avoiding house parents, but still working on the name. You don't have staff hired yet? No, we no. It's gonna be part of the fundraising process is making sure that we have adequate funding for those types of roles and for counselors to be on site. Okay. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that's a little self-serving, so forgive me for doing this, but (laughs) Aging Out Institute is developing what we're calling the AOI toolbox, and we've just started collecting documents for this toolbox. The idea is that it's a document sharing site where organizations that work with this population, young people aging out of foster care, can share documents, be they curriculums, mentoring checklists, admissions forms, you know, that type of thing. They can just share all of these documents in this one spot 
And my thinking is, you know, you go in, you find a form that looks like something you could use, you download it, you make it your own, you know, it would be very generic so that you could make it your own and put your own branding on it. Every document that would be in there would have that permission, you know, that you could do that. And so thinking about yourself in your situation where you're planning a program, it seems like that would be extremely helpful to you. So I just wanted to ask you that because I'm sending out you know, I'm starting to send out more marketing for it to get organizations to donate documents. But even in your early stages, if there's any documents that you would like to share, that's the kind of thing we're trying to get along this collaboration idea is so that organizations can share these documents with each other and not have to recreate the wheel. That's so great. And yeah, we have some that we can put in there and some that we definitely need. Is there a, um, like a contact list of everyone who's involved in it? that's going to be shared so they can like contact the people who've already used the forms? Well, we don't actually have it up and running yet. We're still just okay. collecting documents and making the choice of the platform. But I think that's a terrific idea to, to add a contact to each document in case somebody wanted to talk to them about it. So we'll certainly keep that in mind. That'd be perfect. Because I have used something similar like that for like the legal forms and things like that. But there's always a better document, you know, like you, you find one and it's like, this works as a contract, but man, I wish it looked better. And there's always yeah. a different one. There's always a better one. So it'd be <laughs> nice to have choices. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what we've started to build and we don't have it. We do have a page for it on the website, agingoutinstitute.org, but it's really just a explanation of what we're building and a place where people can load documents. Awesome. So if anyone is listening and you have a document that you want to share, just go to agingoutinstitute.org and look for AOI Toolbox, and then you can load your documents there. So forgive me for going off to the side there. No, do it. (laughs) I'm going to check it out. I'm excited. Awesome. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, I know that you've been planning for a while. You've been working with young people already. How many young people would you say you've worked with in your different smaller projects? It's a hard question to answer, and I'll explain why. We've partnered with Say So. They have Say So Saturday, and it's a great program, and they bring all these kids together from across the state and give them this opportunity to interact with their peers. And we've helped with that event, like small things. We haven't been able to do as much as I would like, but we've been able to help in small ways. And they have, I want to say, 100 or more kids at that event every year. (laughs) So I'm like, I could count them. If I, was talking, <laughs> oh, no. if I was talking about our like personal projects, it's a small number and would probably be under 10 <laughs> because, because we've really been trying to support them individually and personally. And it's been really nice. It's been so cool to see how it's played out. And we've been able to be a part of like weddings and birthday parties and moving and all of these like life things. But yeah, it's a small number. I'll just say under 10. Okay. But that's okay. I mean, you're in the beginning stages and you're defining your organization still. So I think it's better to define your organization with a smaller group of young people. Yeah, I agree with that (laughs) rather than balloon up before we can really support them. Exactly. Exactly. Because I think some organizations kind of set themselves up for failure by trying that. Yeah. So I think that's the better approach. I think it's been a gracious God thing. Cause I would have loved to have seen it like, you know, get big right away and just do the work and have the funding. But 
I really do see the value of taking the time to understand the need more rather than jump in blindly. I wouldn't have before, but I can see now that it was a lot of grace for us to have this waiting period. Yeah, I'm glad you had the opportunity and the support to be able to do that. That's terrific. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I do like to ask the organizations, folks who I interview, what your thoughts would be on how the foster care system can improve how they support young people aging out of foster care. You know, I don't like the podcast to be a system bashing conversation, but I think thinking about opportunities for improvements and coming up with ideas for solutions, I think it's a great venue for that. So just from what you've experienced so far in your learning and planning, what thoughts might you have on where improvements could be made? That's a great question. And I agree. It doesn't serve us to bash the system repeatedly as much as to acknowledge that the system is broken and there are things that we can all do to serve the people within the system well. I've been asked the question before, so I'm trying to put it in the right words, but the thing that stands out the most to me is the lack of consistency within the system and the need for accountability. And I think that that's something that everyone can get involved with, and we don't see it that way, but electing people who reflect our values, not just you know this presidential election, but on smaller levels and supporting our local agencies in a way that's like, hey, these kids are about to age out. We have not provided what they need yet. And they need that. And I think the reason that consistency is so frustrating to me is because we removed children under the premise that the families were not able to meet a consistent and understood level of care. But we have a system that can't do it either. (laughs) And we have 440,000 or so kids in foster care every year, and they're all being served in different ways. And that was something we talked about in our book. It was like, there is not a consistent storyline that we can follow because there's people and it's complicated. But why aren't we holding the system accountable to that basic level of care? I know that's a, that's such a like, maybe, maybe too high of a view, but I think that if we all as a society understood that that was our responsibility and we have that opportunity, we would be doing better in the system. For like people that are really involved in foster care, I think we should just encourage all of the parents and social workers and even teachers at this point, anyone who has like real connection with these young people, consider yourself a lifelong connection and not a stop along the way. I know that that's difficult sometimes and it'd be easier if we were like, okay, cool. They're in their next phase. Everything's good, but they need people that they can always count on. Just like all of us need people that we can always count on. And the system doesn't always look at it that way, especially as we move more and more towards family reunification, which is a great thing if it can happen. But when we do that and we start saying, don't consider yourselves family, we lessen the bonding and we lessen the amount of supports that these young adults coming out have. What's the root of the inconsistency, do you think? Is it the fact that we have so many different states managing their systems differently? I mean, even coming down to the county level, is that the source, the root of the inconsistency, do you think? That's a good question. I really think the lack of consistency is a lack of accountability. The thing is, we have all these federal mandated levels of care, and the national federal government goes in and it looks at each state and it gives them a report card. 
And <laughs> North Carolina got its report card a few years back. It was close to when we were starting, and they were failing at every level. But there wasn't like this sweeping change in who was in charge. There wasn't this sweeping change to what was being done. It was an acknowledgement of we're failing and not a follow-up to what needed to actually happen. And that happens in every state. And I think that that same failure that we see on the state level, like you said, it's also on the county level. When we look and we observe and we're like, hey, Oh, I have so much respect for the people who work in the system. So this isn't about them. It's about how we consider this as a society. So I'm not saying anything personal to anyone, but you look at a county level and you look at these foster parent groups and they're like, hey, I got this judge. Do you think that this family is going to be reunified or you think that this meeting will lead to termination of parental rights? And sometimes the foster parents know the judge so well that they know automatically he will not terminate the rights for at least three years. And that goes against the understood things that will lead to permanency for this kid. And then we have foster parents and they're supposed to use the money one way and they use it another way. It's going against what was already mandated to them, right? So at every level we have these failures. And the question is, can we do something beyond acknowledging the failure? Can we actually demand accountability? Can we ask more of these people? Can enough people pay attention to make a fuss? Because these kids matter. They deserve to be treated with the respect that we told them they would receive. Mm -hmm. So, It's really such a complicated situation because if you held, let's use foster parents as an example. If you held foster parents accountable and actually came to the decision, well, some foster parents are going to have to go because they're not doing what they need to do. And even though we've tried to help them, they're still not doing it. They can't be foster parents anymore. There's such a shortage of foster parents in so many places that they don't want to do that because then they don't have the foster parents. They don't have anybody. Yeah. And I see that and I hear it. But the thing is, I think that would actually solve a lot of issues because in theory, that would force the CPS issues that we have to become more focused. It would change the way that we decide on removals versus family support. It would force us to change our ideas on institutional care, group homes. Like it would force us to raise our expectations of those group homes. And it's unpleasant and it would be very difficult. But we are looking at a time and it's really we're on the edge of either choosing to lean into the difficult work and make it better or dismantle it entirely because we have more need than we are providing attention to. Yeah. I'm a big proponent of the concept of what's called positive deviance. And it sounds horrible, but what it is, <laughs> <laughs> not deviance as in CE, but deviance as in TS. The idea it comes from a gentleman, his name escapes me right now, but in the 70s, who wrote about these villages in Vietnam where so many people were starving, there were a handful of villages that actually were, their kids were doing fine. They weren't starving. And they went in to study why. Why are these villagers doing so much better? Well, they discovered that these parents who had kids that were not starving were feeding them shrimp. And shrimp was a taboo food. Nobody ate shrimp, but they were feeding their kids shrimp and the kids were not starving as a result. And the idea is that these parents who were doing this were positive deviants. They were doing something different than what everyone else was doing, and they were being successful. So my question is, what country 
I wonder, I don't know that you have the answer, but what country is the positive deviant in regard to foster care systems? What country has the best foster care system that seems to be working well, even though they have maybe the same challenges that all the other countries do? I'm throwing that out there to the universe. I don't know if you have an idea. It just is crossing my mind. Why not find that country and see what they're doing right? Yeah, I'll be honest. Our system, and we were talking about our system, and I'm like, it does have a lot of flaws, but the beauty of what we do here and our ability here in the US and in several Western cultures is that we can challenge it and expand it. And I think that that's led to our foster care system being one of the better systems that I've seen. And I've traveled and I've seen different places. I've looked in Russia and in China and in Latvia, and I've taken in studies from different places. And I think that we're one of the countries that people look to. We've actually been the ones kind of being the proponent of foster care as a model. And you're seeing it change in like Romania and some of these Eastern Europe countries to close down institutions and go to family-based care models. So I do think that we are one of those leading models, but In order to stay that, we have to continue to push for better things. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Right. Absolutely not. And I don't think any system really will be. As a Christian, I just don't believe that we as humans are going to reach a point where we have a perfect answer or system in the middle of all of this brokenness. And what we're looking for really is only found in Christ. And humans being humans, mistakes will be made. Absolutely. And we're also in a very individualistic culture in that you might have, for example, your judge situation. Individual judges might make decisions that the judge down the hall might not make, right? If you have a highly controlled culture, and I'm not a proponent of that, but if you have a highly controlled authoritarian culture, then those judges might not be doing that differently. But we do have a very individual focused culture and for good or for bad. It allows for those differences. Yeah. It's funny how we all have the, as humans, have this tendency to go rogue. (laughs) Yeah, but you're right. The individual, my way is best culture is pretty prominent here in the U.S. And it leads Mm -hmm. to a lot of like. Well, that inconsistency. Yeah, (laughs) inconsistency. Yeah, exactly. But I think like you're saying, if the accountability were built in, then you wouldn't have as much inconsistency. So how do you build an accountability without becoming too authoritarian, right? That's the balance. Yeah. I think that a lot of people in our society have an agreement on what should be right, and that's what sets our level of care. And so if as a society, we're the ones making the decision, this is what care should look like, enforcing those expectations isn't authoritarian as much as it is a unifying effort to do the right thing. Yeah. I know that the foundation of your organization and your mission is very Christian-based. What message might you have for other religious organizations that want to do something for young people, whether they're aging out of foster care or maybe other situations? Just from what you've learned, what advice would you give them to maybe get things started? That's a great question. I think that the biggest thing, if you're a faith-based organization like we are, is to write up front and acknowledge that there has been a lot of hurt from other faith-based organizations within this sphere and from foster parents of different backgrounds and religious beliefs. So I think stepping back and allowing yourself to see that will help a lot because it'll change the way that you run 
your organization. We are faith-based. We always explain that and lead with that, that we're coming forward as followers of Christ that are led to do this. But anyone can participate in our programs, and there's no expectation that they immediately convert upon entering or (laughs) exiting. I've seen other groups start, and it's like, we're going to start with a Bible study, and everyone has to come. And it's like, I'm going to be honest. That's not what's actually needed. You have to live your life in a way that actually reflects what you believe rather than force your beliefs onto them in a way that's going to trigger those trauma responses. Is that kind of what you were asking? Did I answer that right? No, I think that's fantastic. I think it's a really good perspective. I know someone who went to a college that was, you know, faith-based college, and it was extremely strict. And some of the young people embraced it. And some of the young people whose parents forced them to go there absolutely hated it. But I think if they had had the perspective that you have, which is, you know, if the people in charge of the college lived their faith rather than forcing the faith's activities on the young people, then they could have had a much more successful educational experience for their young people. Yeah. We don't want people to know the right way to be a Christian or the right way to do these activities, we want them to experience the love of God. And that's by living out your life. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. We've come to the end of our time together. And Miriam, I really appreciate that you've taken the time to share with us about the organization that you started, the residential program that you're planning to start. And I wish you all the best with that and everything moving forward. Thank you so much, Lynn. I had a great time with you. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you, too. Well, for everyone else who's listened to the end of this podcast, thank you very much. We put out a podcast focusing on organizations that work with young people aging out of foster care in this podcast series. We put one out every couple of weeks or so. And you can find them on our website, agingoutinstitute.org. Just look for the podcast link. Or you can really just go anywhere you get your podcast these days. You should be able to find our series. So thank you very much for listening. Until next time.